Hello and welcome to Accented Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. In case you've missed it, Donald Trump is now the President of the United States. He was inaugurated on Friday the 20th of January amidst massive protests worldwide. And in his first couple of weeks in office, he's introduced some pretty extreme policies, one of which being the ban on Muslim migration. Well, actually, the ban on people born in Syria, Sudan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Iraq and Iran from entering the US. This ban had an immediate effect on people. People were being detained at airports, they were being put on return flights or they were being transported to immigration detention facilities. But this too was met with resistance. And just over the last few days, we've seen a winding back of these policies in the face of that resistance. It simply isn't the case that Trump can do whatever he wants. There is a world of people in his way. To talk more about this, I spoke with New York-based political activist, anti-capitalist organiser and human rights lawyer, Suzanne Adderley. I only intended to cover this topic over one week on Accent of Women, but the conversation was really interesting and it went for longer than expected. So this week and next week on Accent of Women, I bring you my discussion with Suzanne. I do note, though, that the situation is developing very quickly. And by the time you hear the second part of this, much, much more might have happened. But for now, here's Suzanne. I was born and raised in New York in a working class community outside of New York City. And uh, my parents were immigrants um, from Jordan. And they came to the U.S. in the 1970s. I continue to have a lot. I have a lot of family that live uh, in Jordan, and I have lived in the Arab world myself um, in Egypt, and more than once working as a legal worker. Um, in the United States, I grew up in a union family. I became a teacher um, for several years and, um, become, and began to become more and more involved in... Um, community level, let's say, grassroots political organizing, um, which led me to other places like Chicago, uh, where I had been working in the uh, capacity as, as, as a community organizer within the Arab American community um, in Chicago. And in Chicago, it's, it's quite a, an extensive, it's quite an extensive community. And it, it's one that um, has a reputation for having been politically active um, since way back in, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and so from there, I you know, became much more sort of like connected to political activism as it relates to Arab and Muslim communities throughout the U.S., but also as it relates to the global movement um, um, for the liberation of Palestine against U.S. imperialism and also basically just sort of global social and economic justice. And, and in most recent years, I, I have worked um, also in, in the trade union movement. Um, in, in particular, spent close to three years uh, supporting the struggles of uh, particularly auto workers in India and, and working on several projects to support workers' movements in um some parts of the Middle East and North Africa or Southwest Asia and North Africa. 
And um, I find myself back home here in New York um, at a time when, you know, political activism, um, like in other parts of the world, political activism has kind of reached uh, an interesting point. And this was even before Trump's election. You know, we have we have had, I think, inspired by what we've seen happen around the globe. So we have had important movements in this country like Occupy. Um, we've had, we've seen, um, very significant struggles by low wage workers throughout the country. And now we're at a moment, um, when resistance to the authoritarianism of the U S government is, is really, really rising. Um, and I'm happy to be here (laughs) in my hometown doing that. Well, you mentioned something. You mentioned something really interesting, which uh, would be worth talking about before we look at exactly what has happened post the election of Donald Trump, and that is that these are interesting times. It's almost a meaningless statement, but you know, to flesh that out a little bit, you talked about rising resistance at the same time that we've got rising repression, and the two more or less do go in hand. But if you were to describe that situation as a whole, I think we could probably say capitalism has reached uh, an epic crisis point in human history. It is really unclear what the steps forward for capitalism are right now. And in those moments, you do get the increased repression because of the desperation of the capitalists, but the Uh increased resistance because on some level, that is all the workers of the world can do at this point is resist. So in that sense, it is, it's almost natural that someone like Donald Trump would be elected. And now his side in global politics isn't the, he's not the only one that got elected. There are, if you look at countries right across the world, you mentioned India um, because of the Indian auto workers, but India recently elected basically a fascist government. So the fascists are getting traction worldwide. And I think commentators that said Trump would never get elected weren't looking at the economic situation because for many of us on the left, we thought he probably would. Absolutely. Um, And I I was actually in India when Modi was elected. Um, And, you know, following it, closely, particularly sort of through the eyes of social justice activists who, you know, I had the good fortune of um, being able to engage and interact with. But then also you see the authoritarian regimes in places like Egypt and um, post-Egyptian uprising in the fall of Mubarak, you know, you have um, a leader like Sisi. And also in Turkey, you have a leader like Erdogan. And in, in Philippines, you have um, Duarte, who, um, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, it, and I don't mean to, you know, simplify, simplify things, but, you know, as we continue to do our work, you know, we're always, you know, trying to, you know, put forth an analysis of like what is happening and what is taking place. And I think, you know, um, both globally and regionally, what has happened, as you said, is an implosion an implosion of what the capitalist system has created. And, you know, in, in, in the Arab world, for example, which is just one region, you know, it's imperialism that 
had uh, an alliance within the regional elites um, that um, that set up a system that was maintained so that the West can continue to sort of benefit um, from either the destabilization of the region or benefit from the growth of markets and business in the region. And in one of the ways, you know, and that created an enormous amount of structural violence, you know, against the poor in, 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 in the regions of, uh, in that region of Southwest Asia and North Africa. And at the same time, in order to sort of maintain you know, that um, capitalist system, it, it had to rely on very violent authoritarian regimes. So you had both structural and state violence that was sort of maintaining this order and that at some point and imploded, right? And then, um, and, 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 and we saw that period of the uprisings and now we see this period of, of very sort of serious and violent counter-revolution um, to that resistance. And then, you know, speaking about the United States. And, you know, I come, as I said in, in, in the beginning, you know, I come from a working class community. My father was a factory worker. I, I grew up, you know, in a diverse community that, which also included like working class white families and working class immigrant families and, and black families. And, um, and I know, I know the kind of people in this country who, would vote for Trump. And I, I, I'm not one of those who believe that, you know, their intention uh, is solely sort of based on uh, racism or, you know, trying to sort of hold on to white supremacy or, or privilege. I mean, that certainly exists to a great degree in this country. This country was founded on, um, on ideas of, of white supremacy that allowed you know, the gen genocide and enslavement of, of, of millions of blacks and indigenous people. And, um, and, you know, and this capitalist system has, you know, allowed uh, those kind of like racist ideas to continue to flourish in this country. But there's a lot of people who voted for Trump because they have no place in this sort of liberal Democratic Party politics. If liberal Democratic Party politics has never done anything to address their needs. And, 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 and especially when, when the left, the so-called left in, 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 North, in um, the U.S. Um, has been utilizing so much of a framework of identity politics, you know, there's a lot of working people who also don't see a place in that. Um, and, you know, I think it would have been interesting to see if um, the other candidate who had challenged Hillary Clinton in the primaries, if he had run instead of Hillary as, as the um, main Democratic Party candidate, Bernie Sanders, if you know who I'm talking about. Um, it would be interesting to see um, how many people who voted for Trump uh, would have voted for him instead. Because from what I hear, from what I understand, that those votes were really sort of, uh, in some ways, a cry for help. And just like, um, you know, the system that's in place is is not um, doing what it needs to, to do for us. And then also at the same time, you know, we have structural system within all our cities and states and federal, state, local governments that have been de-investing in... In, in our societies for years, thanks to neoliberalism. And so we have 
deteriorating school systems and we have um, like a population that um, has learned to sort of, you know, feed on certain benefits of capitalism, which are sort of more consumer-like. And, and I, I think part of it is, you know, uh, big portions of the society also, you know, responding to this kind of like media-based kind of cons consumer-like um, consumption of politics. And there's, there's a lack of, of real sort of critical thinking about how to address this. In any resistance to Trump, it, you know, is going to have to um, include that. But one of the reasons why it's hard to include that is because you're going to have to admit that, you know, the empire didn't begin with Trump. You know, Obama did a really good job <laughs> in expanding that empire and, you know, U.S. imperialism himself, as did Hillary Clinton, as did, um, you know, uh, as did, of course, you know, Bush and as did Bill Clinton and even supporters of Bernie Sanders um, were comfortable enough with a movement that did not at all include changes in U.S. foreign policy, which is also as much as like, you know, my family supported Bernie Sanders, much of the Arab and Muslim community in the U.S. did. And it was the one time that they could really go to the polls with a feeling that like maybe things could be different this time. Um, but, but the movement supporting Bernie Sanders also, you know, has to be, you know, critiqued and it, it has not, you know, reached the level of, of really recognizing U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism. I mean, I, I think when Bernie Sanders said that Palestinians deserve human rights, that's the most radical thing we could ever get a politician in the U.S. to say in regard to Palestine. Well, um, I think the point that you make, yeah, and yeah. the point that you're making, I think, which is really important to remember in this discussion is that empire is actually bigger than individuals. Um, and, you know, mentioning the the Democratic counterparts, you know, Hillary Clinton, um, Barack Obama, these are all you know, it is important to remember that unless what you have is actually an anti-capitalist movement, we're just going to get a different version of the same thing over and over. And more importantly, that the the global economy keeps spiralling out of control. So those um, those laws of motion basically don't change depending on who's in power. They are somewhat bigger than the individuals that are in power. And that the election of Trump and the, you know, we talked about the election of Modi in India and you talked about other parts of the world as well. These are the, I don't even want to say natural consequences, but they are expected. They're predictable. These are predictable consequences of where the world is at politically. It's, it's absolutely predictable to anybody who is really paying attention um, to you know, the um, continuing system of capitalism, neoliberalism and imperialism. The problem is that, you know, as I was sort of alluding to a little bit before, there are a lot of people who are not paying attention, right? Because they're taught not to pay attention. Well, let's look. I want to look specifically then because the, these demonstrations outside of the airports have been particularly fascinating. I mean, the, the women's marches, all of those are within our normal realms of understanding. People take to the streets when they're angry to, to demonstrate. But these, um, the taxi drivers, the blocking of the airports, uh, that has been really interesting. Tell me a bit about that. 
Well, that that has been pretty amazing. Um, I actually, starting with the Women's March, I actually didn't go to the Women's March myself. Um, I had, you know, my sister and my nieces were there and my friends. I, w- I had a uh, an engagement at a conference um, in, in, which how was planned prior, which was focused on talking about how to build a revolutionary future, uh, which I was happy to attend because I, I feel that like at a time like this, it's important for us to be studying and to be discussing, um, you know, what our political values really are and discussing what it really takes, you know, um, to be, to build as the conference said, a revolutionary future. Um, and I also do know, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned identity politics before, right? And, and, and I can critique it, but I also kind of understand why it exists in, in a country like this of such diversity and such racism, right? The problem is that, you know, um, you know, the politics are, um, when, when people who have come together because of their experience of not being non-white, it, they've come together mainly um, in my experience, because of a common experience of imperialism and colonialism and racism. And there's a, there's rather sort of an, like an identity politics movement, which is very liberal, that has co-opted that kind of solidarity into something less useful for the movements that we need. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, people tend to organize here in the U.S. within their communities. And I knew a lot of, let's say, women of Arab descent, whether Palestinian or Iraqi or Lebanese, who chose not to go to the Women's March because they felt that, um, and of course, I, I know quite a few Arab women who did very happily go to the Women's March, but there's a lot of Arab women I knew who, in, in, uh, who felt that the effect that war and the war on terror and empire has had on Arab women has never been a concern of those who led the Women's March. And so they chose not to go. Never. Um, other than that, you know, the Women's March was actually, you know, very successful. And even in New York, you know, they had like a half a million people. And in Chicago, they had like also close to a quarter of a million people. And and I know for a fact that there are um, some very sort of important, you know, radical um, movements that, that, that were a part of it. Um, and then, you know, a week later, and we start to hear news of, uh, of what um, Trump had planned um, in regards to uh, immigrants um, from uh, Muslim countries. And then news came out that he was particularly um, planning to sign an executive order very soon that would uh, bar refugees and bar people from these seven countries, including green card holders. And, you know, and there was just a lot of um, immediate, and very organic organizing happening behind the scenes, whether among lawyers or among community groups, um, to um, think about what sort of needs to be done um, in order to uh, protect people being targeted by the executive order. And um, by the day after the executive order was signed, there were thousands of people at the airports. And, and, um, and, I, and, and I remember that day because I, I didn't mention when I introduced myself, but I'm actually a lawyer. Uh, so I was actually at a meeting uh, not far from JFK Airport with my colleagues. Like I belong to a leftist national 
left-leaning, let's say, we're a spectrum of, of individuals, left-leaning uh, National Lawyers Association called the National Lawyers Guild. You know, we have sort of an, uh, sort of an anti-imperialist mission, an anti-capitalist mission, et cetera. And we were having our national meeting uh, close to JFK Airport. And, and so we, so several of us um, left our meeting in order to join colleagues and others at the airport. And when I arrived, I was amazed. I, you know, I expected for there to be a small rally outside. It were, there were thousands of people at JFK. And let me tell you, getting to JFK is no small feat. It, it's out there and there's traffic and it takes forever. And um, I didn't expect it to be so large. And then I started to hear from my comrades in Chicago and my comrades in the in San Francisco. And, 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 um, and the, the show of support was just amazing, amazing. And it shows, you know, who we really could, you know, what kind of numbers we could really sort of bring out. And the protests had an immediate impact um, because, you know, the White House by the next day backs down on including um, green card holders in this ban, for example. Um, and then there were, you know, there were there were lawyers and there were people volunteering to translate, you know, that were responding everywhere. And we were spending our days kind of coordinating what needed to be done in order to service the people who were, who were, who were being affected. Uh, that individuals who were arriving, both green card holders and visa holders were arriving at these airports and were being turned back um, or were being detained. And in some cases, individuals from other countries as well, not just the countries of the seven that were named uh, by Trump. And by the way, they were named by Obama before they were named by Trump. This, this, these countries were listed on other um, pieces of uh, policy that were put out during the Obama administration um, concerning visas, et cetera. Um, yeah, and so there were, there were thousands, you know, there, there actually, you know, we, there's actually at least, if you consider those who have been traveling to the U.S., those who live within the U.S., and those who are abroad, you know, um, it's, it's affecting at least 100,000 people um, immediately, immediately. Um, but as of course, it's, it's affecting everybody from these countries. Um, and so people were being detained. I mean, let me tell you a story, for example, like on Saturday, we received notice from a woman who is a PhD student at one of our public universities in New York, who is of Iranian descent and has been living here on a student visa for many years. And she was abroad in, I believe, in the Emirates doing her, re you know, as part of her research. And she was at JFK, she arrived at JFK, she might have been actually on the plane while it was being signed. Um, she arrived in JFK and then they put her on a plane back to Iran. Uh, and um, there was also an individual of a Jordanian teenager who arrived in Texas um, on a student visa as well. His brother is a green card holder and lives in Texas He's a permanent resident who lives in Texas, and his brother received a visa to come, you know, to the U.S. to stay with him, and was actually uh, enrolled in a high school in Texas. He went home um, to renew his visa, which is a, a requirement, and, and he came back to um, the U.S., arrived in Texas, was detained for almost three days at the Texas airport, and then he was put on a plane to Chicago 
and put in the detention center in Chicago. Um, and, you know, these are two cases. I mean, there, there are many, many cases like this. And a lot of what had to happen, especially in the first couple of days, is first of all, you know, get the information from families as to who was traveling and who was arriving and where were they detained? Were they detained in, in, in one of the U.S. cities? Were they detained in transit in, in a place like Kiev? Were they detained in Ethiopia? Were they sent back? Where were they sent back? Can we get access to them? Are they at the airports? Um, you know, can we file, you know, a, a petition of habeas corpus to sort of, um, or can, can we get them a notice to appear? So it, it was just sort of a lot of, you know, running around to, you know, respond on a case-to-case basis to all of the thousands who were being detained and treated this way. That was part one of my discussion with New York-based activist Suzanne Adeline. Tune in to Accent of Women next week for the conclusion of this story. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au, and that's the digit three not spelt out in letters. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna, and I look forward to your company again next week.